I'm Tammy Faraday, and you're listening to Brave Journeys, the podcast about exceptional people who've navigated life's invariable challenges with courage, authenticity, grit, and grace. Never before in the history of humankind has it been possible for a woman to give birth to an infant who is genetically unrelated to her. Never before has it been possible for a woman to be the genetic parent of children to whom she hasn't given birth. Never before has it been possible to bring children into the world in more than 30 ways. Never before has it been possible that a child born can have more than two genetically related parents. And never before has the issue of choice had such kaleidoscopic implications, particularly for the children born of these advancements in medical science. So with that in mind, let me paint a picture for you. It's the 60s in South Africa when my next guest, Fiona Darrock's parents, sought the assistance of gynaecologist obstetrician Dr Norman Walker to start a family. Dr Walker assured Fiona's parents that by mixing sperm samples, it would help Fiona's dad's sperm to fertilise her mum's eggs. But before you vigorously shake your heads with disbelief, remember, we're talking about the 60s, when doctors, let alone specialists, were godlike and their advice was gospel. Dr Walker then told Fiona's parents to go home, make love and forget it ever happened. And that's exactly what they did. 37 years later, Fiona uncovers the truth about her conception. Not only was the man who raised her not her biological father, but she also discovers that she and potentially hundreds, yes, hundreds of her siblings were the outcome of what is known as fertility fraud. And I do feel as if we've been cheated of our heritage because we weren't allowed to have a relationship. We were never acknowledged as part of that family. And now that I'm starting to build those relationships with the ones that are still alive, I can really say that we did miss out, that it wasn't fair. And I wouldn't like to see that happen to anybody else. Today, Fiona is a clinical psychologist who works with many adults who, like her, were donor-conceived and are struggling through the avalanche of heartache and unanswered questions when they discover that the families who raised them are not the people who gave them life. This is Fiona's story. Fiona, welcome. Before we even begin, though, I just want to share with you that for me personally, having the chance to speak to you today is like closing a circle. Because about 12 years ago, I was undertaking research with a beloved friend and collaborator of mine about assisted reproductive technology. If I remember correctly, I was pregnant at the time. And we were hoping to convert this research into a documentary series entitled, Who Am I? And what made this project so groundbreaking then was that we wanted to approach it solely from the perspective of the donor conceived, namely the children born of these technologies, to find out how they really were faring. Society innately understands a person's primal longing to become a parent and has made unfathomable scientific leaps to assist in that process. But my friend and I were deeply curious, and I have to admit concerned, as to what the cost might be for the children who were finally old enough to say how being donor-conceived was impacting their lives. And here I find myself more than a decade later, and I start the Brave Journeys podcast, and then I discover you and your incredible journey, and it finally becomes crystal clear to me why I'd immersed myself in this brave new world all those years ago. 
And that was to get ready to meet you and share in your remarkable story. I am so happy you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here too. Fiona, let's go back to the 60s. Your mum and dad, Lynn and Mike Darrock, marry very young in South Africa. And by the time your mum's 24, your parents had been trying for five years unsuccessfully to fall pregnant. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I think all mum ever wanted was to be a mother. She didn't have any great career plans. She she just saw herself as a wife and a mother. So she did what I, I would imagine any couple who are experiencing infertility do when they go and they seek the advice of a specialist. That's right. I think her GP sent her off to see this gynecologist who had a, a very good track record for helping people get pregnant at that time. So the gentleman that we're speaking of, the specialist we speak of, is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Norman Tony Walker. But your mum's connection with this Dr. Walker extended just beyond being his patient. Is that correct? What was their relationship beyond being doctor-patient? My mum's very vivacious and I think he was quite taken with her and she ended up doing some typing for him. In fact, she ended up typing his two novels for him. They became friends and when I was born, my parents agreed to have him become my godfather. I think it might have been his suggestion but they were very happy for him to be my godfather. And we continued to have him play quite a, a big role in our lives after that. What was it that Dr. Walker was proposing to do for your parents to assist in the birth of their family? Well, my mum tells me that he told them that my father didn't have any sperm and that they would need to have a donor to be able to conceive. So he said that it was quite a common procedure and that they normally used medical students and that it would be completely anonymous. And I think the current practice um, or the practice at that time was to not tell the children and, and in fact, not tell anybody but to go home, make love after the insemination and just pretend it didn't happen. And that's what they did. But from that point on, your parents, as you've indicated, became very close with the Walker family. He was like a generation ahead. So his children were closer in age to your parents than the Walkers were. You have barbecues together. His three daughters are very close to you and your brother and sister. And his wife, Molly, by all accounts, was gorgeous and treats you and your siblings like her own grandchildren. Absolutely, yes. Dr. Walker takes his responsibility as your godfather seemingly very seriously. He's very invested in you and your happiness. And during your childhood, he writes you, which I've seen, thank you for sharing, many warm and loving letters. The two of you had clearly established a very close bond until he tragically takes his life when you were just 15. What is it that you remember of him? Um, I, I have very clear memories of him. I saw him from the day I was born. He, he came to visit once a week. Every Friday after work, he would come over to our house. He came to all my birthday parties. He would take us out, take, take me and my brother and sister out. He would buy us books. He would just go to a bookshop and get a box of books sent to the house he was a, a very important part of our lives, my life in particular, because I was the oldest out of the out of the three kids. 
we moved from um, Natal to Cape Town. He and I started to write to each other and he would also ring too. So we'd have long telephone conversations, would talk to him about things that I would never talk to my mum and dad about. I would ask him about about sex and about um, relationships and I'd ask him about what life was like when he was younger and I, I really can't remember having those conversations with my parents and he was always honest and open and really warm um, and he was a you know a really important part of my life. Did he feel, I mean, was it like an avuncular character? Did he feel like an uncle to you? Because that closeness that you describe is not something that one would normally have with an adult beyond sort of the family unit. So what was it about him? Well, I never had any grandparents. So mum's parents and dad's parents had passed before I was born. And I I guess he filled that role, sort of a a young grandfather really. (laughs) What is it that you remember of the time of him passing? It was just such a shock. It was totally unexpected. And it's just a bit of a blur that whole time. So I was about to hop on a plane and go and stay with him for the school holidays. And um, I had my plane ticket, everything was ready to go. And then there was just a phone call saying that he had died. And when I wanted to go and go to the funeral, I was told, no, it was for family only. They were very mysterious about how he had died and I pushed and pushed until they told me that he had taken his life. And my mum said that he was just so sad about Molly dying a month before that he didn't want to live anymore. And I just went through all the normal emotions that somebody would if somebody very close to them um, suicides. So lots of anger, lots of lots of numbness, you know, all the usual emotions that would be expected of a particular a 15-year-old who was going through that. It took me a very long time to forgive him for taking his life. Did it feel like an abandonment? Oh, totally, yes. And there was no, no letter to me, no explanation, um, nothing. And how often had he written to you in the past? Because, I mean, I think you sent me hundreds of letters. Yeah, we we wrote all the time, maybe every couple of letters a week or maybe, you know, a week or two without a letter and then another batch of letters. And when he wasn't writing, he would phone. Did your parents ever feel uncomfortable about his connection with you? No, I don't think so. I never really spoke to them about it. They were very supportive of it. So, I, th- I think you would have read in the letter, you know, I'd bake a, a batch of biscuits and my father would fly to Durban on a business trip and go and drop the biscuits off for him. They were very supportive. Your relationship with Dr. Walker's family changed quite dramatically after his passing. Yeah. So my mum was close to the girls. She went to their weddings, mum and dad. She went to their weddings. She was there for their babies. I babysat their children. We were very close to one another, I thought, Um, and yet after he died, it just ended. Just absolutely, there was just nothing. There was no connection at all. Can you account for that kind of stoppage of relationship when his life ended? No, I have absolutely no idea. There was no communication. There was no explanation. I don't know why. 
Do you think it was driven by your family? Do you think it was driven by his family? I think mum just said that she kept in touch with them with Christmas cards for a while and then just didn't hear anything back. So she said we just drifted apart. But, yeah, it was a very definite severing of that relationship. So then you grow up and you come to settle in Australia in your early 20s. You train as a registered nurse first and then subsequently as a school psychologist and then devote your working life from that point to families and children. You get married, you have a family of your own, and then some seven years ago, you find yourself online trying to track down one of Dr. Walker's novels, one of the books that your mum actually had typed up for him. And you come across a fairly bizarre review on Amazon. What did it say, Fiona? (laughs) Yes, it was left by a, a lady who was living in Ireland, and she said that Dr. Walker was her biological father and her mother's sperm donor, and that she was trying to get more information. And she left an email address. So I immediately emailed her saying, oh, I was his goddaughter and I've got all the stuff that I'm more than happy to share with you, you know, photographs and letters and things. Um, so her immediate response was to assume that I was a um, some kind of scam artist who was trying to con her. But after I explained a bit more and I sent her some of the information, like the letters with the Um, the logos on the top, the addresses and things. Then she started to talk to me. But then the more she told me, the more the penny dropped that, hang on a second, something's not quite right here. So Anne said that after Dr. Walker, after Tony had killed himself, her mum had gone back to his practice almost immediately Um, while it was still in a state of chaos and had said, I want to have another child. I want my records. I want to know who the donor was. You know, I'd like to have another, the same donor for my second child. And the clinic nurse said to her, Dr. Walker was the donor. She said, look, he did this for a very long time. He helped a lot of families. He's, he helped over 100 families, many with multiple children. It was all fresh specimens and he would occasionally try and get other people to come and donate, but he was the primary donor. And so Anne believed that he was her biological father. So Anne and I swapped information. We both had the same blood type. We both have fair skin, blue eyes. Um, We had a lot in common. We had similar interests. And so we just kind of assumed that perhaps he was my father as well because my mum had told me that she had gone to see him because she had trouble conceiving. And that would explain why he was so interested in me. Then Anne and I decided, well, I would go and ask my mum. So I drove up. First of all, I spoke to my brother and my sister, and my brother didn't want to talk about it. He said that he had worked it out before I had. Really? Yeah, he had come to the conclusion that Tony was our father. 
but that it changed wow. nothing for him and he didn't want any part of it and he didn't want to harm my dad's memory because by that stage my dad had already passed he had passed quite a few years before that so I drove from the Hunter Valley up to Sydney and I sat down with my mum and I said look I know what's going on I want you to tell me the truth she said yep it's true we used a donor for all three of you Tony didn't say that he was the donor he said it was a medical student um, but looking back, she said, yeah, I could see how it could be him because he was always very interested in you three. Because your mother must have been a woman by that stage in her later years of life, an older lady. Yeah. And her daughter comes to her with this kind of revelation and wants some clarity about that. What was her disposition when you put this to her in the first place? How did she respond? Well, I was a, a bit sneaky. I, I got I got her to get all the family photo albums out and we was, we started to go through the photo albums. So I started off that way saying, let's have a look at all these pictures and and looking de- looking for the pictures of Tony and his kids to see if there were any similarities. And then I got around to her talking about Tony and to to introduce that subject it was it was quite a tricky conversation because I didn't want to get her back up and have her shut it down either so then I said look I just have to tell you that I've been talking to this girl and we believe that we're sisters and I really would like to know the truth so and she said oh, I promised your dad I would never tell you kids and I said well I don't think that that's your secret to keep any longer so how about you share all, all the information with me and she did um, she was pretty good about it. So I, I think it might have been quite a relief for her to be able to sit down and tell me exactly what had happened. And I had to reassure her that, you know, that she had done the right thing and that she had been very brave and that I didn't hold a, a grudge and that nothing had really changed. Dad was still my dad. However, I wanted to know a lot more about my heritage as well. So I went and tested on 23andMe and Ancestry and found siblings on both of those sites and also confirmed that Tony was my donor or my parents' donor because we were able to exclude all of his siblings because I matched as first cousin to his nieces and nephews. Do you think that your dad knew? Do you, I mean, he obviously knew that there was intervention involved because there was an issue of infertility. But do you think he had any clue that Tony Walker, the doctor, was the man that inseminated your mother? Well, I think that he probably did know. Oh, I don't can't say for sure. But your dad was a very loving dad. He was totally committed and devoted to you. Yeah, he was he was an absolutely lovely dad. So I'm going to ask you this, not that you can necessarily know anything retrospectively, but you knew Tony Walker very well. What do you believe motivated him to be your sperm donor? I'm I'm just dying to know. I have to be honest whether or not you have any clarity about that because I'm trying to work out whether it was an act of incredible magnanimity or do you think it was something more sinister? Because as the story evolves, we're not just talking about you and your siblings that he helped bring into the world. 
What do you know about what may have motivated him to do this? Well, I know that he was a very loving and generous person. He gave very generously of his time. He did a lot of pro bono work. He he worked for the Salvation Army running their home for unmarried mothers and doing all the deliveries for free. He didn't really care about money. He definitely didn't care about fashion or anything like that. I think it was altruism. I think it was possibly misguided altruism, but I think he was coming from an altruistic perspective where he was just helping people grow their families, people who wouldn't be able to have children. And I don't think he actually saw it as himself giving his own children away rather than giving them a chance to have families. Do you think his wife Molly knew what he was doing? He and Molly were very, very close. They had no secrets. And she was the first one to grab the photographs of us and put it into her little photograph album. And she was very, very supportive. So I'm pretty sure she would have known everything. Do you think his children from the marriage would have known? From talking to his eldest daughter, she she was married to a, an orthopedic surgeon called Richard. And talking to Richard a couple of years ago, he said that the girls did know. When you get this life-changing piece of news, which is by any stretch life-changing, how do you put the pieces back together, especially when at this stage you've lost your father, when I say father, the man that raised you, your dad, and Dr. Walker died when you were 15? So, Where do you turn at that point to get the clarity or the questions answered that you probably desperately want by this stage? What do you do at that point? What does it do to your mental health, to your relationship with your family, to your spirit? What do you do when you're in your 50s and you find out this piece of news? Well, it certainly was a a huge shock to my sense of identity. And I discovered that Even looking in the mirror, I'd be not seeing myself the way that I used to see myself. And and I believe there's a a name for that, and that's genetic bewilderment. It's such a big shock that you actually start to look at your features and break them down to see which part of them belongs to which parent and to see who you look like. And then to start looking at all your actions and your interests and to start wondering where they came from how many siblings I had, which parts of me were nature, which were nurture. When it first came out, I thought it was quite interesting and it was it was a great dinner party conversation or, you know, something to talk about. And then as the siblings started to turn up, as we started to find out how big this actually was, then it started to get a little bit more serious Once I started to meet all my paternal cousins and to talk to them about their childhood experiences, then I started to realise the loss and the extent of the loss. That's when the the grief and loss really started to kick in. Does that make sense? (laughs) It makes perfect sense. So your husband looks at a photo of Tony Walker from his driver's licence that you had when he was 16 years of age. And what was his reaction to the photograph? 
Yes, that, so, so that happened soon after Anne and I had started talking when I, I actually pulled out. I hadn't read those letters for, oh, probably 20 years. They were sitting in a box in one of my drawers and I immediately, I knew exactly where they were. They're next to my bed. They're in the bottom drawer of the bedside table and that's where they live. And I pulled out the box and I pulled out this little tattered old driver's license with this sick picture of him at 16 and I thrust it over to my husband and I said who does this look like and he just laughed and he said looks like Hunter so our daughter Hunter who was 16 or or was she was a bit younger at that time is pretty much the spitting image she's got his pale blue eyes um, his almond shaped eyes I've got round eyes He's, she's got his very full lips as well, um, and she's got his sort of angular cheekbones. And there's, I mean, have you you've seen that photo, haven't you? There's no mistaking it. That's Hunter. It's extraordinary. I mean, you and I have spoken, and I've told you that I have children who look nothing like me. I want my money back. You know, mm. it's funny because so many people I know, and I'm not just talking about donor conceived children who were raised in families where there was adoption, parents who absconded, they want to see something reflected back at them that makes sense of the world. They want to know where their nose came from. They want to know where their idiosyncratic eyebrow lift comes from, whatever it might be. And that's a critical piece as you speak about. But that is such a palpable longing for people where there is genetic question marks and they don't know from whence they came. Yeah. My daughter Mary, who still lives in the States, did a 23andMe test that she had been given for a gift for Christmas. And she rang me up and she said, Mum, who are all these people who I've matched with? All these new people who are close relations, you know, aunts and uncles, and I don't know them. And then I kind of realised, hang on a sec, we're going to have to do this properly. So people just are going about their business having a bit of an appetite or a curiosity for where their ancestry came from. And yet they're finding secrets that are totally unravelling. That's correct. Your daughter wasn't exceptional in this because all of a sudden she finds out she's related to an inordinate amount of people she had no idea even existed. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that 10% is quite a conservative estimate. We can't really tell. As the number of people testing go up, we might get a bit of a better idea. But it a lot of it depends on people sharing their matches as well. So some people have their matches set on private and other people openly share their matches. All my matches are shared and um, I have all the information on my ancestry and on my 23andMe, and I'm also part of the the bigger databases as well. So anyone who goes looking will find the information, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'll know about them. So they might keep their matches on sort of mute, (laughs) silent, and not share them. Or as many do, they kind of come and go so they they will pop in and get information and then they will just ghost us and disappear so we don't yeah we don't really know what all the true figures are so because you don't know what the true figures are do you have even a guess as to how many siblings 
you may have and where they're located around the world? Well, from the spread, so, I mean, my, I was definitely not the first. My mum told me that. Tony showed her photographs of babies. But from just my daytime, the oldest out of the siblings that we found, to the youngest, we've got a spread of about 14 years. So that took us up to two years before he passed. So there may well have been more siblings before me and after, and only from what the clinic sisters told us. And we managed to get, you know, get into contact with two of them who shared quite a bit of information and they spoke absolutely glowingly about him. Everybody who came into contact with him or worked with him absolutely loved him. But they said there were a lot of babies. From looking at similar cases, other doctors have used their own sperm and looking at long-term donations, we reckon that that figure of around 200 to 300 is probably a conservative one. There probably are many more than that. That's a long period of time. But I'm just shaking my head. Like, we're not talking about people that are sort of far flung and removed from you. We're talking about your half-siblings. It's a very, very close familial relationship. I was raised with two half-siblings. That is a term I don't even use because, to me, they're my siblings. There was never any question. We were raised together. We love each other. We're connected. So, to me, they're my brother and sister. It's, it's, it's a no-brainer. You're talking about two to 300 of that kind of kinship all over the world. How many of them have you even been able to track down? There's only really a, a small group of us who maintain constant communication. So we're on Messenger. So there's probably about 10 or so of us who are really close. And then there's people who pop in and out and come and go as well. And they're spread out all over the world. So we've got family in Ireland, in the UK. We've got Sibs in the States and there was one in New Zealand, but she's moved to um, Australia now, in South Africa and in Australia. So mainly the people who have tested are the people whose parents immigrated or who immigrated themselves. So South Africa hasn't really jumped on board the ancestry DNA testing bandwagon. They've just started. It's just starting to become popular and it's still really expensive there. Whereas here in Australia, you can pick up a, an ancestry special for 75 bucks <laughs> for a Mother's Day present. So I think there are going to be a lot more down the track who test or maybe not even them, but their kids will test. And it's pretty easy to work it all out if all the information is there for you. And the family trees are already done. Do you long to have meaningful connections with all of these people? Is that something that you would have an appetite for or it's actually just too overwhelming? It's too overwhelming. So every time I see that there's a message come in from one of the sites, you know, you have 27 new relatives, I get this really sinking feeling. Are you serious? You could just get a message saying you've got 27 new relatives. Yeah, yeah. 
doesn't necessarily mean they like close connections. It it just sends you a message to say there's 27 new people who have tested, who have connected with you. So most people have oh got around, goodness. you know, a thousand or a bit more connections. It just grows exponentially. It's 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 astonishing. I mean, I, I think you've been so immersed in this world for now a few years, but to a layperson listening to this, it's just like, oh my goodness, it's mind blowing. You know, it's not enough to just find out that there was some artifice, if I can put it that way, connected to your conception or some secret that was kept. You know, the impact is sort of never ending. It's extraordinary. And not one of the siblings knew. So none of the parents told them. So every time this is a new discovery and you've got to go through the whole process of telling them the story and sharing all the not so good bits and helping them through that as well. And then you get siblings like my youngest sibling whose sister was two years younger. She found out that her parents had used a, a different donor for her. So we think that would have been just before Tony died. So she then found out that she wasn't part of the sibling group. And even though we wanted to draw her into the group and accept her and, you know, have her as part, she felt like an outsider. And she still hasn't found out where she comes from either. So she hasn't found her family yet. Is it true that Dr. Walker's children, so the three children from his marriage, rejected all the donor siblings? So once there was some knowledge that Dr. Walker was actually the donor and you sort of as a collective group approached them, is it true that they sent cease and desist letters and asked you to no longer have anything to do with them? Yeah, and they wouldn't share any medical history, wouldn't give us any information. They just sent a, a very formal cease and desist. Under South African law, anonymity is legal. Um, you don't have any right to have any of this information. Um, do not contact us, contact us again. Very formal letter. And then some of my siblings have reached out as individuals to try and contact them, and they've just got no response. They just don't want to know us. Which is, must be so heartbreaking for you, particularly because you actually had a close relationship with them as children when you were younger. But at the same time, do you have any empathy for their position? Do you understand that it must be very overwhelming to find out that they were inadvertently, from their perspective, have this whole world of siblings that they had no say in having? Yeah, and I I have a lot of empathy for them. And fortunately, their children don't feel the same way as them either. So I'm in contact with some of my nephews from those relationships. One actually lives in Sydney and is married with a child. His brother lives in the UK and I stay in touch with him and his wife and their kids. So even though... The Walker girls didn't want to take that step. Their kids didn't feel the same way at all. And just to confirm and clarify, because, again, it's so difficult to put all the pieces into place, you are half-siblings with the Walker girls. Absolutely. Fiona, what is fertility fraud? 
Fertility fraud is when you are led astray. So, for example, what Tony did was to impregnate people or to, to get them to conceive without really ensuring that he had informed consent. In order to provide informed consent, he would have had to tell them that he, as their gynaecologist and obstetrician, was in fact using their, his own sperm and to see whether they were okay with that. Um, that didn't happen. So these days, there are cases going on all over the world. There are doctors who are still practicing who have done this, who are being called to account, many of them with very large offspring groups as well. And there's legislation being enacted all over the world at the moment to prevent that sort of uh, fertility fraud occurring. So they're making it illegal for um, any doctor to use his own sperm. Does it make you angry? You seem so calm and placid almost about this and very accepting. If Tony Walker was alive today, would you be cross? Is there any part of you that's angry? Do you feel you've been duped? I mean, how does it sit with you? If he was alive today or if I found out earlier, I certainly would have spoken my mind. And I do feel as if we've been cheated of our heritage because we had no say in having those relationships severed. So we're talking about our family members, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles, our cousins. We weren't allowed to have a relationship. We were never acknowledged as part of that family. And now that I'm starting to build those relationships with the ones that are still alive, I can really say that we did miss out, that it wasn't fair. And I wouldn't like to see that happen to anybody else. What has this news done to your understanding of family and identity? Because one's identity is our essential self. And there's no doubt that for those born through assisted reproductive technology, genetic history is fundamental to their understanding of who they are. And for, for many reasons, which we'll actually explore a little bit later, but many donor-conceived offspring that I've spoken to contend that the people raising them are also the ones who conspired before they were ever even born that these biological relationships should bear no consequence. And the irony of this is that we're not talking about parents who are living with the prospect of infertility who chose adoption or who chose to foster children. They chose very intentionally to have a biological connection to that child, which is why they were the recipients of donated genetic material. This agony was articulated so powerfully by Wendy Kramer, who was the founder of the Donor Sibling Registry. And that was founded in 2000. So that's a generation ago. That's 21 years ago. She actually established it by herself and with her son, who was donor conceived. Now, she herself went down the donor conception route in order to have her child. But the reason that she established the registry was so that donor-conceived offspring could make contact with others with whom they shared genetic material because 21 years ago there was no 23andMe DNA kits. There was no such thing. This was the only sort of clumsy way of people who were desperate to find some familial connection to sort of put themselves on these registries and hope that someone somewhere in, on the planet would say, I know of your sperm donor, I know of your egg donor or 
And it was probably not very scientific the way that it ran, but it was the only option that they had then. Her motivation for establishing the registry is even more interesting because she was a first-hand witness of the damage the losses were doing to her son, Ryan. And he so powerfully said, when people have said to him, well, your donor had a contract to remain anonymous and that contract needs to be honoured. And he said, but I never signed any contract. Why does the donor's right to be anonymous trump my right to know where I come from? And that struck me so powerfully all those years ago because I think herein lies the dilemma. Most people, as I said earlier, not only including me, especially me, empathise with the anguish caused by infertility. And the latest epidemiological research from the World Health Organization suggests that more than 186 million individuals worldwide are infertile. Now, that definition of infertility is broad. It might be because they are in same-sex relationships or they're heterosexual couples with biological limitations or because they, you know, didn't find a partner in time during sort of the window of their fertility. I mean, it, it can be for a myriad of reasons, but that's a lot of people on the planet who want to become parents who can't become parents. And believe me when I say that this exploration is in no way to judge the torment of those desperately longing to become parents. We understand this agonising longing to be a parent, but it's just so that we can be frank about the sense of loss that certain choices create in their offspring. And so I wanted to explore that with you. I don't think that people down the street who have children understand the compounded losses that people who are donor-conceived experience throughout their lifetimes. It's not just not knowing who their parent is. It's not just not being raised with them. It's also, as you said, it's the severing of their entire lineage, their familial structure. Fiona, why is it so critical for the donor-conceived, as well as for adoptees, to have access to information like knowing from whom they come and how they came to be, who their siblings are, where their siblings are, the right to be protected from accidental incest, the right to a relationship with those who are responsible for their creation and the right to their biological inheritance. I know I've packed a lot into that and all of them deserve to be spoken about. But you and I, if you and I go to the doctor now at this stage of life, we will be asked, is there a history of cardiac issues in your family? Is there a history of diabetes? Is there a history of cancer? Just in terms of that, if you do not have the answers to those questions, you are at a decided disadvantage in terms of health outcomes. That's correct. And there have been people who have died unnecessarily because they haven't had that information. You know, Narelle Gresh is a perfect example of that. So if she had been given the information earlier, she would have been able to get some testing done and to take steps to prevent her very preventable bowel cancer and she might still be with us. But she didn't have that history. And Narelle's law is, is the law that Victoria put into place, which Victoria was the first state and one of the first places around the world to actually retrospectively change the legislation so that people were able to find out who their donors were, to be able to track them down and get the information that they needed. But you're talking about the possibility of having upwards of 300 siblings. 
Had you been 18 and going to college and you stayed in South Africa and there was this pool of children born from, I'm just using your your case as a a hypothetical, uh, but you went to college and you sit next to someone and you think that person's absolutely wonderful and it's true that if you are genetically connected to somebody, there is likely to be an attraction, not necessarily a physical attraction, but an attraction because there is a simpatico, there is an innate simpatico between these two people. There are cases of people falling in love, not knowing that they're related. And your situation is one where there was a fertility clinic. Unfortunately, records were destroyed, which is stories we're hearing from all over the world. But there are also rogue individuals who are uh, promoting their so-called donation services on apps and online, almost like an online dating service, who are prepared to be prolific donors. I think there's a gentleman by the name of the Sperminator. I didn't even want to mention it because it's just so... <laughs> Ari Nagel, it's yes. Just, <laughs> yes, but, it, I mean, it's, it, it's so horrific. It is. Because it's the commodification of it. That's what it is. There's no recognition about the impact Anybody with a right mind would know that if they're giving X number of donations, that there will be X number of children born of these donations and that there is a real risk of siblings who are unaware of each other for a variety of reasons falling in love, having relationships. This is really scary stuff. It is, yes. And there are a number of those known donors who make a living out of it and fly around the world and advertise themselves in lots of online groups. And their their goal is to see how many offspring they can leave behind um, with absolutely no thought to the horrific mess that those offspring then find themselves in. Have you found in your practice that donor-conceived children also commonly claim to be subjected to various types of emotional blackmail? Because while society seemingly expects donor-conceived to be appreciative that they were born at all, rearing families or social families or legal families also seem to expect gratitude for the superhuman efforts made to bring them into the world. And with this type of family folklore, it's hardly surprising that if and when donor-conceived offspring seek to understand their true identity, they're deemed to be ungrateful at best. And at worst, their parents interpret this quest as an outright rejection of the specific choices that were made prior to their child's conception. Now, historically speaking, the vast majority of donor-conceived children subordinated their longing to find out, forgive the expression, but who's who in the zoo. Yeah. Um, and search for their biological relatives because they didn't want to hurt their parents, they didn't want to stoke their insecurities, and they didn't want to seem disloyal or unappreciative. But now it's 2021 and guilt doesn't have that much currency anymore. Do you experience particularly older donor-conceived children who are really struggling being made to feel like they should just be happy that their parents went to these Herculean efforts to bring them onto the planet in the first place? Absolutely. And I, I don't think it's it's limited to older donor-conceived children too, because I'm on a, in a number of online groups and we have a wide range of donor-conceived members in our community, including some pretty young ones. You know, there's 14, 15-year-olds who 
pop up every now and then and want to find out exactly how to track down their donors. Um, and they're very good at sharing that information. And from chatting to them and chatting to the 20-somethings who perhaps have been born from same-sex parents, that pressure that they feel to be loyal and to not go looking for the donor who's actually their biological parent uh, is quite immense. So, you know, I, I have friends whose parents belong to the LGBT community who feel very strongly that rainbow families and the way that they form their families is a right and that those rights take precedence over the rights of the children to know their genetic families and to explore those connections. I've had those conversations with them and there's a lot of pressure brought to bear to toe the line and to accept the way that your family is structured. Something else on that point that's fascinating is that for many offspring, the word donor, and you were talking about that, they're not a donor. It's a euphemism that we use to make people comfortable. Absolutely. I hate that word. And it's also a word that's far more appealing for potential donors, given that a donor seems less significant and intimidating than a biological mother or father. But an additional consequence of this semantic manoeuvring is that it leaves many offspring feeling discounted and misunderstood because when you call someone a donor, you actually remove the gravity of what these people have provided. And therefore, the comeback to the donor conceived is it was just a donation. It really isn't the person who has wiped your brow or picked you up when you've been sick or nursed you back to health or any of these other very critical parts of the parenting life. So it's just a shorthand way of really minimising the feelings ultimately of the donor conceived. And so, yes, the word donor is appropriate when you're donating blood. It's not appropriate for a person who provides, whether for money or not, and that's another whole discussion, their DNA, which is the book in which half the recipe for a new human being is recorded. And I remember a moral philosopher writing, I can't remember who it is, to be honest, you can't contract out of being a parent. We can use whatever terminology makes you feel comfortable, but at the end of the day, you actually can't contract fatherhood away. You can't contract motherhood away. It might not sound very PC in 2021, but that's a very strong argument. How do you feel about the word and the lexicon that we use around these things that actually probably don't feel very connected to you as a person who was born via donor conception. Like, Yeah, I, I have very strong feelings. So if somebody refers to him as my donor, I say, well, I've never used a donor. My parents used a donor. He's my biological parents or my genetic parents. And the same about the word dibbling as well. That's another word that really minimises the connection. It's a kind of a cutesy word, a made-up word, and you instantly get this picture of an Instagram occasion where you've got a bunch of really cute kids all smiling together and, look, isn't it fun, they're dibblings. But in reality, these are kids who are brothers and sisters who are not being given the opportunity to 
grow up having normal relationships with one another. They might get together online or every now and then for a, a group meeting, but their relationships have been severed basically to the extent where that you know they they've been reformatted you can have a different kind of relationship with a dibbling than you can with a brother or a sister have you met many of your siblings have you actually met them i know that there's been online opportunities for you to have interactions but have you met them have you had any aha moments when you were in each other's company absolutely yeah so we had a get together 3 years ago and we had Anne and her family came from Ireland. Others came from from the States. We, we all met up in Australia and had two weeks exploring and drinking lots of red wine and watching each other. But there have been so many aha moments, it's hard to pick them. The one I, I liked the best, though, was watching two of my sisters who had never met each other before who are pretty much exactly the same age sit down at the kitchen bench this is within a, you know the, the first few we'd just driven back from the airport sat down for a cup of tea and they both opened up a little tin of blistex slip balm and started dabbing them on their lips at the same time while they were talking and that was just a classic it was like looking at two people looking at at each other in the mirror. That's unbelievable. You can't sever the genetics. You can try, but you can't. Yeah. In November 2019, when the United Nations celebrated the 30th anniversary of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, there were a group of donor-conceived and surrogate-born adults who were invited to come together to tell their stories to the UN in Geneva. And they made recommendations to the Human Rights High Commissioner for Human Rights and they were met with a standing ovation from the audience. And when I was reading the recommendations that they made, which featured in your paper, it just seemed so clear and like it was a no-brainer. It didn't seem difficult to understand from where they came and the position that they held. And some of these recommendations included unfettered access of information to all donor-conceived and surrogate-born children, comprehensive and complete records of all parties involved in the conception to be held in perpetuity by the state, that the best interests of the children born of these technologies and advancements are of paramount import, and the prohibition of all forms of commercialisation of gametes, children and surrogates. As I said, that makes perfect sense. If we're going to go down this brave new world, we actually have to protect the kids at all costs and they have to be at the front of mind at every stage. And we have to futuristically project what new advancements and new technologies mean for these children, whether they're born now, historically, or in the future. But as someone, again, Fiona, who has a lived experience of being donor-conceived and works tirelessly in the space, what else should we be doing to protect the psychosocial well-being of children born through assisted reproductive technology? I think that we need to change the way that we look at this. Just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's ethical. And I think that if two people or one person, if it's a single parent, really want to bring a child into the world, they really need to explore all the options and to look at doing it in as ethical way as possible. So, 
For me, I think that the most ethical way to grow your family is to make sure that that child has a relationship from the very get-go with everybody who's part of their family, not only the people who are raising them in that particular household, but their extended families, both social and um, biological. So, there are a lot of of ways to do that. And there are a lot of people going about it quite happily without making a big deal about it, where you don't have to have parental responsibility to be part of a child's life, but you do have to pay an interest and you do have to be able to help meet their needs and give them that information and and offer that possibility of a relationship. And the only way to do that is to have shared experiences. So you've got to be around from the get-go. So we're talking about arrangements, for example, where you might have a couple who are together who invite somebody else into their family to grow their family. So you might have three parents or four parents (laughs) or even more parents than that. And we need to look at different ways to make that possible and to start talking about the pitfalls and how to prevent them um, so that people discover that there are other options besides just using a identity at 18 donor because that's definitely not the best option for your child. Fiona, through your psychology practice and advocacy, there's probably no one better placed to support the ever-increasing donor-conceived community who didn't ask to come into this world but are most certainly entitled to full transparency and disclosure when they arrive. Thank you so much for closing the circle for me. It has been such a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been lovely to chat. Thanks so much for listening today. The brave journey of my next guest is equally compelling and I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Please join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Oh, and if you love the show, please don't forget to rate it and leave a review. Brave Journeys was created, hosted and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But I couldn't do this without my wonderful team, including my audio editor, Zoltan Fecho, and a very special thank you to George Weinberg. Ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. I'm Tam Faraday and I'll see you on TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. See you next week.